What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Daniel Goleman, the psychologist and best-selling author, is here to discuss his new book, Optimal, How to Sustain Excellence Every Day. Joining him to talk about it is science communicator Dr. Gunesh Taylor. She's a postdoctoral research scientist at the Francis Crick Institute, making biology more accessible to everyone. Let's join Gunesh and Daniel now in conversation. Our guest today is Daniel Goleman, author of five New York Times bestsellers, best known for his paradigm-shifting book, Emotional Intelligence. He has a long-standing interest in meditation, dating back to his two years in India as a graduate student at Harvard, and his books have been translated into more than 40 languages. We're here today to discuss his new book, Optimal, How to Sustain Excellence Every Day, co-authored with Kerry Chernis, a professor of applied psychology at Rutgers University. And with that and no further ado, I'd love to dive straight in, Daniel. So the book is called How to Sustain Excellence Every Day. And that's just such an appealing strapline. I mean, who who doesn't want that, right? But um, when I was sort of reading, I was, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was quite surprised when, when, you know, very early on in the book, you say, listen, you know, optimal performance is not about the flow state, this thing that we've all heard so much about. It's this other state, the optimal state. So I wondered if you could um, define the flow state and the optimal state just for our listeners in brief and tell us what the differences between the two of them are. Yes. So the flow state was discovered by a group of researchers at the University of Chicago who asked people, essentially, tell us about a time you outdid yourself when you're absolutely fantastic. You were amazed by how well you did. Uh, And they discovered that no matter the domain, you know, ballet dancers, basketball players, chess champions, that state, the internal experience was the same. The problem with the flow state is that it isn't something you can predict. It just happens Mm. to you. And it's once in a while. It was that one time I was so amazing. But we think that it's more reasonable, more realistic to aim for what's just below the flow state, which is your optimal state. Those days when you're really good, when you're really on, when you feel that your performance was outstanding, uh, you were committed and engaged in what you did. Your focus was really 100%. And maybe we can talk more about focus because I think that's a secret doorway in. Mm -hmm. And also, 
uh, not only did you feel good about what you did and how you were doing, but you connected well with the people that you uh, work with every day. So those are the markers. And I think it's on the same spectrum as the flow state, but it's not that rarefied once in a while, unpredictable. I think it's something that we can do voluntarily, uh, and that's important. Yeah, spectacularly important and also deeply empowering, right? Like exactly as you said, waiting for the flow state to find you can be so demoralizing at times. You know, you try and do your best mm. to get into it. And so my sort of takeaway message or synopsis of, of the book, as I understood it, was you're basically saying that emotional intelligence provides us with um, a sort of platform of sorts to allow us to, to more readily access the optimal state. Is that fair to say? Well, what surprised us when we were writing the book was that uh, subjectively, you know, that research on the our best days, it was from Harvard Business School, they had 12,000 journals that people kept every day of what happened to me today and what it was like. That was the basis. But when we uh, looked at the attributes of that optimal day, that really great day that I had, uh, it turned out that if you look through the lens that organizations use, for example, engagement, satisfaction, lower turnover, uh, feeling good, uh, it, it's the same state but seen from the outside. So basically, companies, organizations of all kinds want people to be in the flow state. And it's important here, uh, not in the flow state, rather, the optimal state. And it's important mm -hmm. here to think about what gets you there. Sometimes people are at their best because their boss is hammering them, they're pressuring them, they're stressing them. And it's very important not to get into that best state because you have to, but rather because you want to, because you feel good, because you're committed, because you're engaged, you feel some sense of purpose, you feel involved in what you're doing and enjoy doing it yourself, not for them but for you. Yeah, there's a sort of sense of sustainability within that, right? You're more likely to sustain it if it's coming from the well, inside. Yes, if, if you're being pressured uh, and stressed out to give your best, that leads over time to emotional exhaustion and to burnout. And mm -hmm. my co-author, Kerry Chernus, is an expert on that. Uh, he, he wrote the chapter on that in the book. And in fact, uh, what he says is you need to find ways to recover. If you're in that sad situation where you're being pressured uh, more than you want, you need to plan in your day, schedule time for a recovery, doing something you love, doing something that restores you. That's the way the body is designed, not to be stressed all the time. And the upside, of course, is if you can find uh, what really engages you, what you really enjoy in what you're doing, and get into your best performance from a positive angle rather than a negative one. Right. I mean, so you've you sort of alluded to the importance of focus. So let's get into the heart of it. So there's these differences between the flow state and the optimal state. You certainly persuaded me that the optimal state is something that we're more after. Um, having great days more sounds like a fantastic way of being. Um, but how do we how do we do that? Like, what what are your sort of suggestions, and how does it relate to emotional intelligence in particular in this context? How do they relate? So what, we make the case that emotional intelligence gives you a platform 
to more often get into that optimal state. And one of the abilities, uh, there are four domains of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-management, empathy, and social skill. It's really in this self-management domain that we can get ourselves more easily and more readily into the optimal state, particularly with the competence that we call emotional balance or emotional management, where we're able to recover from our upsets. And one of the skills you can practice, and this is important, uh, that will help you get there more often uh, is uh, letting go of distraction and focusing on one thing. I often share with people a method that's very common. It's an attention training method. It's actually sometimes a meditation, depending on the belief system, but take it out of the belief system. From the point of view of cognitive science, what you're doing is retraining attention when you, for example, focus on your breath, the in-breath and the out-breath, and the next breath, in-breath and out-breath. Then when your mind wanders, and it will, and you notice it wandered, bring it back to the breath and start again with the next breath. And do this daily, because if you this is a skill. The more you practice, uh, this is called neuroplasticity in brain science, the more you practice a skill, whatever it may be, your golf stroke or paying attention, the stronger the circuitry in the brain for that skill becomes, and the more easily you can access it, and more mm -hmm. often it will occur spontaneously. And that's what you want to have uh, happen with your attention, because as I mentioned before, paying close attention to what you're doing is a way to manage stress, to mm. be more calm, to be more clear, and to do better. So this is a way you can uh, make sure you're more ready to have that optimal experience every day. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I found um, I found that sort of four quadrant model really fascinating because it starts sort of in the in the very immediate sense with a very personal sort of at the personal yeah. level, right? Like it's yeah. what am I feeling? How am I doing? And sort of the ability to correctly identify one's own emotions seems to be sort of step one in the process. And then this thing that you you sort of just described about the ability to to manage those emotions then is the really critical second step into accessing this um, optimal state. But then the next two quadrants, the sort of, I was sort of thinking of them as beyond the individual. I don't know if that's fair to say, but it, it sort of then stretches to, you know, well, aside from my optimal state, mm. what is the optimal environment and how can I uh, sort of feed into that? Do, is that fair? I love that. And uh, the way I put it, for example, when I talk to leaders in organizations, first lead yourself, be self-aware, mm -hmm. manage your feelings well, uh, marshal the positive feelings. That's what's going to keep you engaged and motivated. But then empathize, tune into the people around you, and then use all three of those together to help create a positive atmosphere. Uh, and that too is part of that optimal state. So it's not just managing yourself, it's spreading those feelings, and feelings are contagious. And by the way, leadership just means that someone is in a position of authority. You could be a parent, you could be a teacher, but you're a leader in that sense. And this is really important. There's very good research from Yale University School of Management that shows that emotions are contagious, and they flow from the most powerful person outward. 
So whether you're a parent or you're, you know, a boss at work, whatever it may be, your emotions count because they spread to other people. Mm. And hopefully you're in a positive state and you're going to spread those emotions. Yeah. I really enjoyed the fact that the book was quite um, pragmatic and practical about the sort of importance of of um, these skills in leadership. And it was very apparent to me reading through the book that how organizations can use these skills to create better, to create better environments. But also exactly as you said, what really struck me reading it was the fact that your definition of a leader was a lot broader than you might think from a very sort of, you know, business centric uh, point of view, right? Which I completely agree with, right? Like there, there's leaders in social situations, there's leaders within families. And um, one of the aspects you talked a lot about was sort of, um, what was the, t- what did you call it? It was a sort of organi- organizational awareness. There was, there was a, a name that you gave this idea of being um, sort of mindful and observant of the sort of flow of power around you and influence and sort of paying attention in in a meeting, for example, or in a family setting as to who's actually listening to whom. And, and yeah, I thought that that made it really powerful because this isn't just about, you know, how do I do better at work and get that promotion, right? Like it, it strikes me that you're talking about something much wider. Well, I, I think uh, these skills apply in any setting. So in a family or in a group, whatever it may be, who's the most influential person? Who do people look to? It's very interesting on a team, for example, at work. The designated leader is not necessarily the most influential person in the room. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you want to notice that because that's important. That's part of this organizational awareness, sensing how decisions are made, who makes them, because then, you know, you can use your persuasion with that person uh, to get them on the same page as you, for example. Mm. That's really interesting. So I'm I'm curious. I mean, I feel like we've kind of covered the synopsis of the book there, and I'm sure there's, of, of course, there are many other things to say, but I'm, I'm always curious as to how it is that people come to these sorts of trains of thought and how, what were the sort of key moments in your journey of realizing, you know, actually, hang on, you know, emotional intelligence is really, really critical to leadership, for example, and and that. So how did you come to this? Well, I think two things uh, helped me get there. One was looking at organizations. My co-author, Carrie Chernis, has done a lot of work with uh, emotionally intelligent leaders. And when we looked at organizations, what we found was it takes someone who champions emotional intelligence on a business side, if it's a business, that is someone who has high prestige in that organization who says, you know what, this matters here. And then not trying necessarily to hire for it. It's, it's a little bit elusive in a hiring situation, but making sure that people understand this matters for your performance. So it's not just, did you get your quarterly numbers, but how did you get them? Are you, mm. are, do people hate you? Do they want to leave? Are you hollering out the human capital, so to speak, of the organization? And the other is, Offering development in this that re- that works, not just uh, you know someone talking about it or a weekend, but sustained practice. As I said, that's what's going to make the difference. So that's what we found in organizations. That was one light bulb moment, I would say. And the other uh, had to do with looking at that research on the optimal state and realizing, you know, this is what companies are looking for. This is what organizations want. 
in their employees, but they're looking at it in a completely different way, but it's the same thing. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think uh, the sign of a really good idea is when you first hear it, it almost seems self-evident for a split second. And then you have to almost check yourself and be like, oh yeah, I haven't, you know, that, that does sound really reasonable, but why has no one said this before? And I've really found myself thinking that quite a lot when I was reading through the book, being like, yeah, I mean, surely this makes perfect sense. And also I was, I found myself curious sort of thinking about, you know, you know, most people don't think about this and say, I've read the book now and I, I want to start practicing this a lot more as I go forward. And um, I'm at the point in my career, at least where uh, leadership is um, demands are increasing and I'm about to expand my team. And so wow. I found it to be really helpful to be reading at this mm. moment in time. Oh, but I also had a, I had a question about, so culture shift obviously takes time. And you were saying already how important it is to sort of have this culture of engagement on these subjects around. But is there like a, I assume there's no hard and fast rules, but um is there like a critical number or a threshold that you go past at some point uh, where it sort of becomes adopted and then sort of perpetuates itself sure. through, a, through an organization? You know, I can't give you a number about that, that you need this percent of people to be this level of emotional intelligence. But I can say uh, that uh, we find in our research, particularly about teams and organizations, that setting norms that are emotionally intelligent in terms of interaction really matters. So I was talking to the uh, director of a national laboratory in the U.S. He had like the three or 4,000 PhDs working for him. And he said, you know, we have a norm here that when someone offers a new idea, the next person who speaks has to support the idea. Hmm. It's very easy to knock down a new idea, to criticize it, to be a devil's advocate. These are fragile buds, and we need to support them. He says, I have no idea who started that, I, that norm, but now it's done everywhere mm. in the lab. This is the kind of thing that a leader can do, establish norms. And if you look at our work on uh, teams, particularly Vanessa Dreskat, a colleague of ours, uh, who looked at high-performing teams, she finds that uh, the teams that do the best or whatever it is the team does have emotional intelligence at the group level. So as a leader, I would say, or a team leader, it's important to pay attention to how people are interacting. For example, do you foster a sense that everyone belongs? This is really important 
Google found that its sense of psychological safety was one of the hallmarks of their top performing teams because it means people can bring their whole selves to work. They can take risks. They can not be frightened that they're going to be criticized and humiliated if they offer a new idea, but actually supported. Uh, and people can be candid with each other about their strengths and limits. And they also uh, found that those top performing teams were mostly intelligent in how they were they treated other teams they depended on, whether it was in their supply chain or somewhere else within the organization. Uh, so I would say being emotionally intelligent at the group level is very important. And for you, it may mean uh, establishing or reinforcing those kinds of behavior. Mm. I, the, when you were speaking, then I was reminded of there was a specific part in the book where you talked about diversity and, and what happens when minorities mm. are brought into the workplace. And for me, at least, it was like a breath of fresh air seeing someone write down the fact that, you know, yes, it can be emotionally alienating to be, to feel as if you've been brought in simply because of your characteristics. I've never seen that written down before or addressed. And I think that that's really important because I, I do think that that's an experience that at least myself and other people that I have spoken to have expressed. And it can be so damaging. And, and I found it quite interesting mm -hmm. thinking about how, you know, sometimes in trying to do the right thing and sort of ostensibly doing the right thing, if the conditions aren't right or if it isn't executed mm. correctly, it can actually be more damaging than, yes. than not. I, I would put it a bit differently. I think too many organizations are very mechanistic in how they try to implement mm. diversity and inclusion. They think that just having the same number of group X that represents the general population is enough. It's not. People who come into an organization need to feel they belong there. They're accepted. They're welcomed. That's what really matters. Uh, it's that psychological safety I was talking about. So you want to be sure as a leader that you welcome people. You, and you know the way you signify people don't matter is very subtle. It might be, uh, you know, when that person speaks, uh, you suddenly look at your phone or mm. pay, pay no attention rather than respect and want to hear what they say. But when you pay no attention, you're communicating to everyone else in that room that that person doesn't really matter. And you don't want to do that. So I think that's another responsibility of leaders or whomever is the most influential person in a group. Mm. I think you also said something about um, curiosity within the book. And I'm struck by that in this moment because I think sometimes it can be quite difficult for people to empathize with others who have had a very different life experience. And so mm. sometimes I think that kind of dismissing behavior comes from, not from a place of active dismissal, but rather a sort of inability to engage. And I was struck by the part where you were talking about getting curious as being a, a, a really helpful methodology for, for engaging with circumstances or perspectives, perhaps that you wouldn't automatically be able to engage with normally. Yeah. It's so interesting. You know, there was research at the University of Southern California with a very successful entrepreneurs who built businesses from nothing to really huge. And they all said they made decisions with a very wide information gathering net. Essentially, they were curious. They looked far beyond what other people might look at uh, to gather the data that they needed to make the decision. And I think that anyone 
who's an executive or a leader in an organization who doesn't realize there's value in what people who have a different background from your own have to say. Because if you're truly curious, you'll want to know. Mm. It may matter one day. It may matter today. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the book is obviously extremely persuasive that emotional intelligence is, mm. is critical to accessing this optimal state. It's very persuasive of the fact that the optimal state is both pleasant and useful for mm. the individual, but also for the workplace. But also you talk a lot about how it's something that can actually be developed. And I think that that's really important because a lot of people think of intelligence as fixed. You you have a, an amount and sure. that's that's your lot in life, right? So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, is there a difference in the amount of plasticity or the amount of growth yes. that you can get in of emotional course. intelligence? And So IQ, cognitive ability is pretty much fixed for life, but emotional intelligence is learned and learnable in life. Uh, I have a Daniel Goleman emotional intelligence online program for people that really want a deep dive. Uh, but basically the good news is that this is a skill set that can be learned and learnable. You know, you don't hear about it while you're in school in academics because IQ really does matter there. It's during your career that the people who stand out are going to be those with the mm. most emotional intelligence. And that uh, is sobering, I think, for a lot of people. But don't give up. It's learned. It's learnable. Yeah. I think that's really, really key. You're right, because many education systems are so hyper fixated on the sort of intelligence and fact side of things that it becomes very easy to forget that, you know, most of life is actually spent within your career phase, not in your education phase. I mean, she says as an academic, having spent most of her life in a university, but, um, you know, it's, it's true that, that, that that does get forgotten and, and having that kind of perspective is really helpful. Um, so the book obviously ends on this very sort of future orientated perspective. So, um, I'd love to sort of end our conversation a little bit on that. So the transition point from what we were just saying, I guess, is, um, you know, it would be fantastic if the education system also featured some sort of emotional intelligence mm. training. Right. Um, but what else would you, what, what else would you like to see? happen in light of, of your work and findings? Yes. Yeah. So there, there are many schools that integrate emotional intelligence into the curriculum. It's called social emotional learning, uh, and it's a worldwide movement, but it's idiosyncratic, and I don't know that it's there in the UK much. Uh, however, uh, in the future, we're going to meet challenges that we have no idea about today. And what I say, what we say in the book, is that Emotional intelligence will always be needed, but so will cognitive and technical skills. But in addition, we need to be innovative. We need to support creativity. Uh, we need to have a deep sense of purpose that motivates us. And also, we need to understand systems, because I think the leverage that matters in the future will be changing the systems that control us. You said in passing, you know, our purpose. And finding one's purpose is is no mean feat and obviously also uh, relates somewhat to these sort of, you know, emotional intelligence skills, right? Um, when I was thinking about the four quadrants, I was thinking, I guess, one figures out one's purpose in the first quadrant, right, by checking in with oneself. 
but um, I'm not an expert in this. So I wondered if you could comment on that a little. How, yeah. how does one find that? We'll start finding that. You're absolutely right. It's self-awareness, that first part of emotional intelligence, which is the least visible, but I think the most important, that lets you tune into what matters to you, what thrills you, what bores you, what really gives you a sense of this is what I want to be doing in life. You'll only know that by tuning in uh, very deeply to yourself, and that's where your sense of purpose will be. Yeah. I find myself often talking to university students and I find myself encouraging them to try different things and put themselves into different situations mm -hmm. so that they, they sort of stand a chance of having an emotional reaction that they might be aware of. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if that sounds like a reasonable thing to suggest because, you know, how, yeah. What do you think of that? <laughs> oh, that's a great idea <laughs> because it's in those uh, situations where you go beyond your comfort zone, where you're in a new situation, mm. that you're more likely to have emotional reactions, either very positive or very negative. And that's exactly the kind of information I'm talking about that guides you to your own sense of purpose. I think we're, we're running out of time, unfortunately. So I just wanted to thank you again, both for, for writing the book, Optimal, How to Sustain Excellence Every Day, it certainly changed the way I'm thinking about how I'm going to proceed going forward, both professionally and personally. So thank you for writing it, Daniel. Thank you also for this fascinating conversation. And lastly, I am Ganesh Taylor, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, Sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue too. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.